Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new Ed Voices podcast by Education International. I'm Elena Schulz-Gimeno, and today we will listen into a conversation that took place during our conference, Unite for Quality Education and Leadership in Rotterdam. A conversation between our research coordinator, Martin Henry, and Philippa Cordingly, who is the chief executive of Curie, the Center for the Use of Research and Evidence in Education. Ms. Cordingly is an internationally acknowledged expert in using evidence to develop education policy and practice. And our colleague Martin Henry discussed with her how teacher unions have contributed to the development of the professional identity of teachers and to teacher professionalism. Here's what they said. Hi, it's Martin Henry here from Education International. I'm the research coordinator. We're here in sunny Rotterdam and it's a beautiful day for talking to Philip Accordingly, who's from the Curie Institute, who has been working in teacher education and professional issues for many years. And we're going to start by talking a little about your union history, Philippa, because you've been working with unions for a long time on this issue of professionalism. I know that back with the NUT in the early 2000s, you were one of the initial explorers of the world of the professional, professional identity, teacher professionalism, and what it means to be somebody who can push the boundaries of education in a safe and, and boundaried way, but in a, a very clear fashion. So, Philippa, over to you. Okay, well, um, one of the things that was really important uh, in the early days of promoting teaching as a research and evidence-informed profession was the role of the National Union of Teachers in England, where they said, okay, what will it take to do this for the long haul and to do it really well? And, and I wanted to argue for what was then a very early technology, which was doing systematic technical reviews of research. Previously, without the internet, it had been too costly and expensive to do that. And the National Union of Teachers, with the help from John Bangs, made a very brave decision to fund one of the earliest state-of-the-art systematic reviews of the research about what makes a difference to teachers' uh, professional development and learning. And even more excitingly than that, what he and I were able to do was recruit 30 teachers, 30 to 15 serving teachers and 15 retired teachers through the National Union of Teachers to be our advisory group to make sure that this very systematic and technical work would also be meaningful for teachers. And uh, what was great about that was the academic advisors to the project all said, you'll never get evidence about professional development that works for teachers and for students. And the teachers all said, well, we're not interested in helping you if you don't. So I could argue with, with the academic world that we were going to hold out for that. And indeed, it turned out we did manage to surface. It was a lot of hard work. We did manage to surface large-scale studies where there was evidence about support for teachers' professional development and learning that made a difference not just to the teachers but to their students. And surprisingly, there were some pretty coherent results. And not only did NUT um, stay the course with what was a very exacting, quality-assured international process, but also then they applied that, and they asked us to help them apply that to their own pioneering professional learning programs for their members as a way of building professional identity. And in so doing, they were really influential. They funded um, 
peer supported learning between teachers with external support from leading edge researchers at a time when nobody else in England or, or really pretty much around the world was doing that kind of professional learning and so we, we had bottom-up support for challenging government about just to do a much better, more serious evidence-based job about professional learning. They were really exciting times. Okay, so you've taken me to my next question, right. which is how you can, with the work that you did then, look at platforming an area of work where PLD has become the catchword in education for the thing that will change everything. And, and we've talked often about teachers and the way that teachers work within the classroom. They want PLD, they want professional learning support, and they want the sort of evidence that you're able to provide. How do you think the ensuing 15 years has gone in terms of developing the teacher, teacher professionalism and teacher autonomy in a way that's sympathetic and capable of moving them to a place where they're able to be more comfortable, more active, more, more learner-focused in their classroom? Well, I think there have been a couple of breakthrough points here. I mean, one of the first things was, when we first looked at research in the early 2000s, all we could find was studies of CPD, Continuing Professional Development Support, given to teachers. I finished a review of all the reviews in 2015, where we were able, for the first time, to service evidence not just about CPD done to teachers, but systematic approaches to professional learning where they take an active role in leading their own learning. So we moved from CPD to CPDL and that was that's fundamental and I think that that was one of the big breakthrough points when we started to notice just what a big professional job it is to take responsibility for leading your own learning. Thing one. Thing two, one thing the research in the second and third reviews began to make very clear is that this stuff takes off teachers when it's all organized around their aspirations for particular subgroups of learners accountability systems are about whole classes mm. okay whole classes are what teachers care about but if you want to do deep learning you have to break the problem down and eat it a teaspoonful at a time and you have to give teachers space to focus on subgroups of learners who, who's at, for whom they can have really ambitious aspirations and, and work through so we often get uh, encourage teachers to start with, say, skilled disappearers. That, I mean, they're always interesting, the kids who know how to stay under the radar, you know, who watch and wait to see when the teacher's caught the eyes of someone they'll ask to answer a question, and that's when their hand goes up, because then they know they can stay quiet. So if you give teachers a chance to concentrate on aspirations for subgroups of learners, they can wrap high-quality learning processes around the day job. They can take planning lessons, planning schemes of learning, day-to-day uh, -day evaluation, and they can look at really rich evidence, not just progress data, but, but student voice, you know, people's own accounts of learning, pupil work, videos of pupils. They can make things that occur naturally in the classroom become the kind of evidence they work with when they work with each other. And another of the key breakthrough points, I think, has been understanding just how important shared vulnerability and peer supported learning is for teachers. If I risk making myself look silly because I'm trying something new in my classroom and you Martin take a similar risk in your classroom, even if we don't meet very often, we, we don't want to let each other down and I can't think, oh well the inspectors have come in or you know somebody else is sick and not do it. I'm going to make sure I've done that learning and I'm going to bring to my next conversation you, with you. 
some evidence about my students because I know you'll have done that and I just don't want to let you down or the kids down. So reciprocal vulnerability, organizing professional development around our aspirations for named subgroups of learners. These are things teachers feel passionate about. These are the things that, that keep that make professional learning stickable, that, that keep teachers going against the odds. And and thinking about this not just as CBD, but as a professionally skilled role that teachers take responsibility for themselves individually and collectively, those I think have been the breakthrough things in the last 15 years. Okay, I'm really interested in that journey from professional development to professional learning. And you talk about shared vulnerability and how we as learners and right. teachers are able to get into that movement. An old friend of ours, Adrian Alton Lee, always used to talk about the need for professional learning yeah. to involve some external yeah. expertise, but yeah. also involve a communal process. Yeah. And we've talked a lot at EI about that importance of community and communities of teachers working to support each other. So you've talked a little about the individual aspirations of the teacher. What about the collective aspirations of the teachers as, as a, a union of people who are able to support each other in that learning process? If you can just tease that out for us a little bit. Uh, actually, in some discussions at, at a, in a conference session this morning, uh, we were talking about this. And that very first review for NUT blazed the trail for this. It, it, one of the big studies we looked at um, compared teachers who were developing who were on the programs that set out to develop their individual efficacy and ab ability to feel confident about making a difference with teachers on a program that was set up to help them believe they could become collectively efficacious and, and make a difference to their students. And there was a really interesting difference between the two groups. The teachers on the programs that set out to develop individual sense of confidence and effectiveness, pupils made more learning gains than any other pupils but, worryingly, their students came out with a decreased commitment to learning. Whereas the pupils of the teachers on the programs focused on building collective efficacy, made good progress, just not quite as good as the students in the other programs. But their pupils came out with an increased commitment to learning. So that's the long game, isn't yeah. it? That we're not, we're not involved in a situation here where we're trying to set up teachers in a way that gets them to the end goal. Yeah. It's about that constant process of working together, yeah. trying things. And I really like what you've said about the ability to take risks in the classroom. How do we do that in a way which supports and secures the teacher in a time of terrible issues around accountability? And you mentioned the expectorate before. We've all had those Ofsted experiences where they're coming into your classroom and nobody's really clear what they're about. How do we actually keep that growing? in a time when we've got other things coming into play which are not necessarily platforming the teacher in a way that is the thing we're talking about. Well, I think, I think key is, is, is having things running in parallel tracks. We often say in Cure that engaging with research and inquiry is for life. Engaging in research is for Christmas. You know, like the thing about dogs, yeah. you, know, you, buy a puppy for, you buy a puppy for life, not for Christmas, but you do research as a teacher for Christmas. You do it once or twice if you're going to go all the way and publish it and make it a big public deal. But you engage with mini-inquiry, micro-inquiry processes. 
and your colleagues research on an ongoing basis for life. It's a habit you've got. And I think you talked about Adrian Ortonley and those amazing New Zealand bestseller syntheses in the in the appendix to the Vivian Robinson one about school leadership, when she was talking about what makes what, what school leaders can do to make this stuff an embedded part of teachers' life collectively in schools, was she talked about the importance of tools. And you know, if you're doing a master's, the university will assess whether you're able to do a literature review, whether you're able to design a big study. Well, okay, this is complicated stuff and it takes a lot of time. But you can, in the meantime, an organization like a professional association can provide teachers with micro-inquiry tools that make that easy to fit into day-to-day -day life, like going down a motorway slip road. You know, we, we don't have to put a lot of obstacles in teachers' way to carry out inquiry. They need it to be business-like, you know? They need, they need to not to have to design every survey, not to have to design every task anew. So we try and curate, you can look on our website, and we make things that look like tube maps, where every station is a bite-sized piece of research that a teacher can spend 20 minutes on working together with a group of teachers every, every week. So I think it's about tools that make it easy to wrap this around the day job and make it meaningful uh, in terms of shared professional responsibility. So there's a balance here between evidence, external expertise and inquiry. And, and this is something OECD talk about yeah. in TELUS supporting teacher yeah. professionalism, that that triangle has to be supported by the peer network, the knowledge and the autonomy that the teacher is able to have. I agree and I think that what's underestimated is the role of really practical tools to make this workable on the data so you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Uh, so I think it's tools that enable you to keep those three things in balance with each other and make sure you're not asking teachers to do what actually researchers think is wonderful research design but actually is a whole load of bureaucracy for a teacher if you can give them tools you can make sure that they're focusing all their efforts on the learners and the learning and each other. So we believe at Education International that you should have resources, that you should have PLD provided for every teacher in every country, and you should be able to shape yourself around the evidence. So you've given us a whole kit bag there of things that we need to be able to offer in a systemic way to support systemic teacher learning. Absolutely. All organised around making it efficient and manageable and inspirational. And we're just going to round off, Philippa, yeah. by going to one of your personal passions, which is how does walking in the Lake District <laughs> help lift the teacher in a way which enables them to go back to the classroom and then open up their kit bag and use it afresh every time? <laughs> I don't know about generalizing that, but what I would say viscerally about that for me, when I'm with teachers, every living fiber of my body is trying to learn them and their passions about their students. And my head gets very full of sensing who they are and listening with all the depth I can muster to where they're coming from and then just slipping things in that will help. When I walk the mountains, it creates the space so I can, I can get a bird's eye view. Of, of what the pattern of this looks like at system level. And, and I have to move between what this feels like uh, as a person, what this looks like analytically, and, and how you pull all those things together. So, so I, need, I need the mountains to help me distill that and connect the personal and the, and, and the structure and the evidence. I love running up mountains too, so it's great <laughs> well, to talk run, to I you. I just walk fast. Great to talk to <laughs> you, to Philippa, talk to you, and we'll look Always forward is. to it. Great. Thank you. Enjoy today's podcast.
then don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud.